some changes to the hymns in the bulletin. So the first is 310 in Trinity. 310 in Trinity. second hymn today is 211 in the Trinity. So 211, same hymnal. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. 
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, the second chapter. And that'll be verses 13 through 23. That'll be page uh, 1498 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. <coughs> Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled that the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because there are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. 
for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah, Judea in a place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Uh, if you would take your Trinity hymnals and turn to page 204. <laughs> 204 in the red. 204, 204. Our scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 and following. In this short Christmas series, our last study dealt with the Magi and the murderer. The murderer being King Herod, who literally murdered his uncle, his wife, his sons, anyone, everyone whom he suspected was a danger to his throne. 
His wicked sister, Salome, played a major role in feeding him lies about those he murdered. So she had a vested interest in something going on here, too. The Magi unwittingly had given Herod enough information to know to investigate where the Christ child was to be born. The theologians of the day noted that any born in the royal line of David, well, they would be born in David's nativity city, which would be Bethlehem. So, Herod then feigned loyalty to the newborn king, commanding the Magi to report back to him when they located the child, so that he, too, could go and worship the new child. What a lie. What Herod planned to do is to go and assassinate the child. Well, the Magi were redirected in a dream by God not to report back to Herod. So we learned out these lessons. True science, astronomy based on investigation and analysis, not astrology, but astronomy. True science has no conflict with the Bible. The star, true astronomy, acted as a guidepost to take these informants to the place where the where the child was housed. We learn, too, that men can know the scriptures, chapter and verse, and still miss the Savior. The theologians of the day knew right where the child was to be born. Oh, we know that. That's Bethlehem. Did that change their heart? Did they investigate to see if that child was the promised Messiah? No. They just had facts up here. But the facts didn't reach here. Didn't touch the heart. Men can know the scriptures. They can know chapter and verse and still miss the Savior. And then we learn, too, that people can appear sincere worshipers of God who are murderers at heart. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're in the same category as King Herod. The government is against the child. The theologians are against the child. They're all walking in the same evil path. Well, in today's study, we will witness the true intent and nature of Herod's feigned loyalty to Jesus when he ordered the bloodbath at Bethlehem. As we come, let us pray for God's enlightenment. Lord, we do count it a privilege to be together today. A lot of us sick, we're coughing, we're sneezing. Some didn't make it out to church today because of problems with health. But be that as it may, you are the God that cares for us. 
and providentially you have set those people aside so they are home recovering, we pray, by your grace. We do thank you for those that have come and that we can be here today studying the Word of God together as a Christian family, being blessed by your Holy Spirit, being with one another and challenging one another and loving one another in Christ, being able to, as it were, look to the new year, another year coming in which we can meet together and we can prosper from God's Word. Bless our people that are sick and that are away from us. We ask for recovery for them and strength for them. This has been a rough year for our little church, but you already know that, Lord. We're just asking for your gracious intervention for those that need your healing power. In Christ's name, we give thanks. Amen. We're looking today in the text of Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 and following of the bloodbath at Bethlehem. Joseph was warned to flee Bethlehem. You recall from last week that the Magi were warned in a dream not to report back to King Herod any of their findings about Jesus' location, but instead to return home by an alternate route, which is exactly what they did. Verse 12. Now that the Magi were out of the picture, Joseph and Mary and the child Jesus were still in danger because it was only a matter of time until King Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, verse 16. Then all of Herod's evil fury would erupt like an awakened volcano and no child in Bethlehem would be saved. Joseph and Mary did not know what would happen, but God did. And so, in a dream, as before, Joseph was instructed by God, verse 13, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. You can sense the urgency in these words and actions. Joseph is in bed. He is asleep. He is dreaming. But his sleep is interrupted with God's command. Get up. Get moving. And where is he to go? He's to go to Egypt. Egypt of all places. Wait a minute. The land of pharaohs and pyramids and the sphinx and countless other idols. A land of pagans and sun worshippers. You really want me to go there? All this is true, but what is equally true and most important in this case Egypt was far removed to the south of Palestine and well out of Herod's jurisdiction. If he ever got wind that the toddler Jesus had escaped to Egypt, he couldn't do much about it. Thank you, Lord. 
Once again, we observe the quick compliance of Joseph. Look at verse 14. He got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Aaron. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And that is Hosea 11 and verse 11. When you think about it, Joseph is quite a remarkable man. I know Mary gets a lot of credit, and I think rightly so. But you don't hear much about Joseph. But this guy is something. He is the stepfather, we'll say it that way, of the Christ child. Dedicated to obey God and to care for Jesus and for his wife, the very best that he could. When he did not know what to do, God told him what to do. And what God told him to do, guess what? He did. Without question, without equivocation, there's no arguing, there's no rationalization, there's no second-guessing of God's directive like Lot did. When he was told what to do, flee Sodom, remember that? Let me read it for you. But Lot said, No, my Lord, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains this disaster will overtake me. I'll die. Look, look. there is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me, let me flee to it. it. It's very small, isn't it? And then my life will be spared. So the angel said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town that you speak of, but flee there quickly because... I cannot do anything until you reach it. And that is why the town was called Zor. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Genesis 19, verse 18 and following. Lot got what he wanted. He was permitted to flee to Zor. But he also got what he never bargain for. He was made drunk by his adult daughters who then slept with him in the, while he was in a stupor. Both of them became pregnant by their dad. One had a son who became the father of the Moabites. The other had a son that became the father of the Ammonites. Moabites, Ammonites, two of Israel's avowed enemies. Better to be like Joseph 
Just do what you know God would approve and stand with God no matter what. You know, faith is not only for salvation. Faith is for daily living, daily decisions, promoting your days, your weeks, your years to come. Well, when Herod heard of what had happened, he was absolutely furious. We've already taken note of Herod's legacy. He was a bloody tyrant who murdered his own wife, Miriam. He murdered his two sons. He murdered his stepson and any and all whom he suspected of treachery against his throne. And now, and now, with Jesus' birth, the Magi had already identified him as the one who has been born King of the Jews, verse 2. Here then is Jesus with a true rival, not, not a suspect, but a true rival, to Herod's throne. No doubt about that. But Herod, like Pilate in later days, did not understand Jesus' words, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is from another place. John 18, verse 36. No, Herod, like all unbelievers, operated on the basis of his own misconceptions. He heard the Magi say, King of the Jews. And immediately, immediately, he viewed Jesus as a rival to his own throne, his own dynasty. Brethren, there is coming a day in which Christ, upon his return from glory will rule the nations in righteousness, compelling compliance by virtue of himself being king of kings and lord of lords. But such a day was future to Herod's day and posed no threat to Herod's earthly kingdom in Palestine. Well, none of this mattered to, to Herod even if he had a mind to receive it. No. No king, spiritual or physical, was acceptable to Herod if he could help it. So Herod's strategy, verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, its suburbs, who were two years old and younger, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, than what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because... They are no more. Matthew 2, verse 16 and following. What we have here is premeditated murder, genocide, 
under the guise of worship. We remember that Herod wanted the Magi to report back, verse 8, so that I too may go and worship him. Oh yeah, right. What he really planned to do is go and kill him. Observe verse 7. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Okay, what does the star's appearance in the sky have to do with anything? The order for massacre of the boys of Bethlehem, two years old and younger, was calculated by Herod, let me read it for you, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. What time? Verse 7. The exact time the star had appeared. All Herod had to do, once he knew the time of the star's appearance was to add up the weeks and months since its appearance in the sky, and voila! He calculated that Jesus was somewhere around two years old. And to make sure his soldiers did not miss killing this rival to his throne, he ordered a bloodbath of all the boy toddlers, age and younger. Herod acted in accord with his bloody nature and his uncontrollable rage. Kill them all! Spare no child, age two or younger. I could care less about innocent lives or grieving mothers, I will not have a potential rival to my throne. And one can only imagine the horrific cry of Bethlehem mothers as the Roman soldiers roared through the little town on horseback and then went from house to house searching for and slaying their tongues. We do not have to imagine how horrendous that was. What about our day? Have you been watching the news? Let me enlighten you. Hezbollah raided Israel. Slaying babies with the sword or bashing their heads against the stone walls. Israel's babies. And when Israel retaliated as Netanyahu proclaimed, guess who the world Blamed as the villain. 
Israel. Brethren, let us not think that true believers in God are going to get a fair shake from the world. We're not. We don't have to imagine what's going to happen when the Scriptures spell it out for us. God, through the prophet, for example, predicted some six centuries beforehand. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great moaning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 18. That's from Jeremiah 31. 15. Rachel was Jacob's beloved wife. You remember. Well, Herod got his way. He vented his fury on the innocent children of Bethlehem. But verse 19 tells us, Herod died. Oh, thank you that that's in the text. Herod died? Uh, yeah. We don't live forever. Tyrants don't live forever. Potentates don't live forever. None of us live forever. The scripture says it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Oh. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Where John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Plural. Revelation 20, verse 20. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be judged by what is recorded about me in the books of God's remembrance. I want to be judged on the merit of Jesus, atoning blood and righteousness applied to my account for no other reason than his mercy and his grace. That singular book is the roster for those so redeemed. And John writes, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 and verse 15. Herod never made it into the book of life. Because he was, as John reminds us, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. First John 3, verse 15. As an unrepentant murderer, 
Herod reaped what he sowed. In time, Joseph and Jesus and Mary returned to Israel from Egypt. Verse 19 and following says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in a place, uh, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Matthew 2, verse 19 and following. Archelaus was Herod's son by his wife Malthus, a Samaritan, and he was no better than his father when it came to being ruthless and cruel. When a delegation of Jews went to Rome to complain to Julius Caesar about Archelaus, he found out who they were and he had them all executed along with their wives, along with their children. And then he confiscated all their life for himself. And Caesar Augustus did nothing about it. Sound like birds of a feather flock together. Sounds like something Caesar would do himself. By relocating in Nazareth, Joseph and Mary came under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, whose mother was also Malthus. This is the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded and to whom Pilate would send Jesus in later life to ease his own conscience about sentencing him to death. So none of these Herods were righteous monarchs. None of them. They were all self-seeking, egotistical, and brutal men. And Jesus, like the Jews of Nazi Germany, had to live his life under the constant danger of men whose evil ran rampant without restraint or conscience. None of them escaped the judgment of God. None of them. Meanwhile, Jesus became the savior of the poor, the underprivileged, the mistreated, and the despised, fulfilling Jesus' own prediction. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Matthew 20, verse 16. Now, what lessons can we draw from this bloodbath in Bethlehem? 
Well, number one, there is an urgency in God's commands that demand immediate obedience without delay. How often it has been that we prove hesitant to comply with what God has commanded us to do. In our defense, we claim to be um, contemplative. You know, we're just being prudent, God. We don't want to rush into something without thinking it through. Well, this is all well and good when reviewing the suggestions of or the plans of men, of men. But it is a stall technique when God has made his will clear to us through his word. And along with this, we claim to want to take some time to, well, we need to take some time to pray about it. As though God might change his mind. Or perhaps we have misunderstood the directive. That doesn't, does that sound like God would say that to us? We use prudence and reservation against God in the name of being responsible and contemplative disciples. Well, let me tell you, Joseph was not hesitant. He was compliant. Immediately, God spoke to him in a dream again and again. Each time we read a scenario like verse 13, God saying to him, Get up, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt. So we read next verse, verse 14. He got up, took the child and his mother during the night. Oh, wow, this is disturbing his sleep. During the night, and he left for Egypt. This was Joseph's pattern, and it was a righteous pattern. He didn't take time to pack his belongings and brush his teeth and comb his hair and say farewell to the neighbors. No, he put swiftness to his feet and was long gone before Herod's goon squad soldiers set one foot in Bethlehem. Wise man Solomon admonishes us. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. For in the grave where you're going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10. Paul put it this way. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Romans 12, 11 and following. Jesus put it this way. My food, my food, that is what satisfies his hunger, and what sustains him. My food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 4, verse 34. Or again, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. John 9, verse 4. An interesting observation, when we pray to God, when we pray to God, how do we pray? I bet we're more like the psalmist. Here's the way the psalmist prayed. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Psalm 22, 19. Turn your ear to me, come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Psalm 31, verse 2. Come quickly to help me, O my Savior. Psalm 38, 22. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Psalm 69, verse 17. I am poor, I am needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help. You are my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Psalm 70, verse 1. Ah, when it's our neck in the noose, we pray with an urgency, a sincerity, And I cannot take no for an answer. Urgency. And these prayer requests that I just read were urgent. God is never desperate, but when he commands us to act, it is to our own advantage and to God's glory to respond in haste. Joseph fled Bethlehem with his family, and he saved them from Herod's butchery. Got up in the night, lay with, honey, we got to get out of here and get out of here now. And off they went. Historical events obscure to men or prophesied by God are nonetheless a fulfillment of God's will. He is the God of history, is he not? Things don't just happen without God in control. Have you noticed how many times in just one little text of Matthew's Gospel, the activities done were attributed to the prophecies of God. 
The Magi show up in Jerusalem wanting to know where the newborn king of the Jews is. The theologians of the day in Bethlehem of Judea, they say, where this is what the prophet has written. Oh, the prophet has written. Micah 5, verse 2. Next, Herod's soldiers are mobilized to enter Bethlehem to slaughter all the boy toddlers. But Joseph is warned to flee to Egypt, verse 15. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Oh, the prophet said something about that too. Herod's men do kill all the innocent children. And verse 17 states, Then what was said by the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And when Joseph and Mary and Jesus did return from Egypt, they were directed by God's Spirit to settle in Galilee in a little village called Nazareth. And we read, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Verse 23. What do we learn here? We, we, we learn your history, my history, all of history, accomplishes the will of God. There is no event that is accidental in the res- as the result of chance. There's no chance in a world controlled by a sovereign God. The breath you breathe, the country into which you were born, the family to which you belong, your exposure to the good news of the gospel, your response through faith, through repentance, it's all of God's doing. Paul taught the Athenian pagans something they did not know about the one true God and creator. Here's here's what he said. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them, year and date of their birth. He determined the exact places where they should live their geographical locations, right? Of your birth, your homestead. You ever think about that? He goes on. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and we have our being. Some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Yeah, they they got that right. (laughs) Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold and silver or stone, 
an image made by man's design and skill. Now, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 17, verse 24 through 30. You don't make God. God makes you. You didn't choose your race. You didn't choose your ethnicity. God did. You didn't choose your country. You didn't choose your neighbors. You didn't choose your friends. You didn't choose your family. All of your history has God as the creator and master of your destiny. The goal being that you might seek him and find him and own him as your Lord and Savior. He's your real father. Think of it, you could have been born in the Soviet Union. You could have been born in communist China. You could have been born in Cathro's Cuba. Could have been, but wasn't, because of God's grace. Thirdly, we learn that evil men like Herod have all their deeds documented by God, proving his oversight and just judgment to come. I've had people say to me, well, I don't believe in God. Or, I don't believe there's a hell. And they say these things with such gusto, such conviction, as though saying it made it so. That's the age in which we live, by the way. Say what you want to believe. It is the lie of Satan which Adam and Eve bought into concerning God, forbidding them to eat of the fruit of one tree, lest they die. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Well, they wished that to be true. So they ate, but wishing didn't make it so. They could not think themselves into being God Knowing good and evil, no, they ended up knowing only evil. And the happy life Satan promised turned out to be the death that God promised. 
God is in control of your life, not you. You and I are sinners by birth and disobedient to God by choice. And if he does not intervene, if he does not change our heart and attitude, the death and judgment God promised for sin will occur and wishing it to be different or denying that it will happen won't make it so. There are not two gods in our experience, one righteous, the other wicked. God is one, not many. He rules and overrules in the affairs of men. Herod thought he had successfully executed Jesus as a rival to his throne. He thought the dragnet his soldiers threw over Bethlehem was beyond escape. But he was outwitted by God as in days earlier. The Magi had outwitted him by returning home to the east by a different route. And verse 7 says, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out the exact time the star had appeared And with that information, he calculated his murderous plan, but God was privy to the plot, regardless of how secretive, how clever Herod had considered himself to be. The psalmist reminds us, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? Since he knows the secret of the heart. Psalm 44, verse 20 and 21. Our Paul puts it this way in Romans 2, verse 16. God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Of the wicked... The psalmist says in Psalm 64, they encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding their snares. They say, who will see them? They plot injustice and they say, we have devised a perfect plan. Surely the mind and heart of man are cunning. But God will shoot them with arrows suddenly They will be struck down. He will turn their own tongues against them and bring them to ruin. And all who see them will shake their heads in scorn. All mankind will fear. They will proclaim the works of God and ponder what he has done. Psalm 64, verses 5 through 9. Men go on and they make their plans for the future. Me included. Don and I made our plans for the future.
And God said, no. No. That's not what you're going to do. And he took that. End up playing. Simple. One simple decision from God. And the plan is gone. It's missed. We need to keep that in mind as we make our plans. You're not the boss. I'm not the boss. None of you are the boss. We have one boss. God who is the creator. The Lord of the universe. We don't tell him what to do. We don't tell him what we're going to do. He tells us. Finally, God calls all his children out of Egypt and he delivers them by his grace. I think you know this, that Egypt in the Bible stands for the world of sin and slavery it imposes on people. Israel, God's chosen people, were in a bad way in Egypt, you remember. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty act of judgment. I will make you as my own people. I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up out from the land of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. Seven times in this little text, we have these I will statements. And Moses reported this to the Israelites. But you know what? They didn't listen. They didn't listen because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Exodus 6, verse 6 through 9. They weren't buying it. It hadn't happened yet. God said, I will. It's coming. But they couldn't trust it to be coming. It wasn't their reality then and there. And so, check it off as uh, passe. Do the promises of God seem hollow and empty to you? Could you be discouraged by the strange hold this sinful world has on you? It is hard to be positive and upbeat when your world 
is a snake pit of poisonous thoughts and defeatist actions. If this is you, you are thinking wrong thoughts. You're looking at the wind and the waves, which threaten to suck you down to the depths of the sea. You remember the account with the disciples. We read, A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, and so that it was nearly swamped, and Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. <laughs> I love that. The boat is about to be swamped. The disciples are in a state of utter frantic. And Jesus is catching some Z's <laughs> in the hold of the ship. So the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? <coughs> And he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Mark 4, verse 37. Is this you this morning? Afraid of life? Forgetful instead of being faithful? Do you still have no faith? Asked Jesus. Or in Paul's words, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God, us who are free. We are the children of God. And what we are experiencing, all of creation is going to experience with us. He goes on. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and is in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our bodies to be redeemed. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that's seen, that's no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? <laughs> that just doesn't make sense. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, uh, then we wait for it patiently. There we go. Don't yet have it. But we're open. We're trusting. Romans 8, verse 18 and following. Okay, why should we wait patiently? Why should we believe that better days are coming for us? Paul answers, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, oh, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he's also interceding for us. Romans 8, 32 and 5. Interceding for us? Christ is praying for us? Before God the Father? You think there is one prayer that the Son asks the Father that the Father refuses to do? Maybe my prayer, maybe your prayer, because sometimes we pray amiss. We don't pray, Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes we pray, I want my will to be done. But the Son praying for us, interceding before the Father for us, always asks what is according to God's will. We, brethren, were brought out of Egypt not to be enslaved all over again, but to enjoy liberation from the power and consequences of sin. To realize that through Jesus' atoning blood and resurrection, we have been made part of the family of God. And therein we rest, and therein is our joy, there is our hope, our anticipation, 
And it can't come too soon for this guy. But whenever it comes, whether I'm alive or dead, absent from the body, I'm going to be with the Lord. And I want that for every one of you here. The same and the assurance of it, the joy of it. So aren't you scared to die? Apprehensive, maybe would be a better word, because I haven't been through it yet. (laughs) And it seems scary to think about. But then in the saner moments of my mind, as I trust the scriptures, Paul says, don't you know, (laughs) absent from the body is to be instantaneously present with the Lord. No rocket ship. No disappearing, reappearing act. Absent from the body. Present with the Lord. No people on earth have that promise except God's people. And Christmas is all about that. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for what you've done for us. We are humbled. You had to make us ready for heaven. We weren't suitable. Laden down with sin and selfishness, pride and ignorance, a defiance to your word and to your authority. That's what we were. No doubt about it. Just like any other person in the world, who we love most was ourselves, not you. Who we wanted to be the boss of our lives was ourselves, not you. So you had to break us and show us there is no hope in that, no salvation in that but found in the power and blood of Christ and his atoning work, wherein he gave us a new heart, a new issue for life. Follow after the footsteps of Jesus. And we thank you and praise you for it. We yet have family members, Lord, that don't know you, and our hearts are burdened for that. They may even be mockers. It's not enough that they don't believe, but they have to make fun of us for believing. But we do pray that you will show them from the mirror of your word what mockery and defiance of God will bring them in the end unless they repent. They don't want to repent. They love sin. It's fun to sin. So, Lord, you're going to have to change their heart. You're going to have to give them a new want to if it's ever going to happen. And I pray that it will. I pray that you will. Save our lost loved ones. Why? Because there are lost loved ones 
and we love them and don't want to see them spend eternity in hell. That's why. And if that sounds selfish, it just means that we love our families to that point. And we remember thou snotty and how defiant we were before your spirit got a hold of us. So we empathize. We pray, Lord, that you will get the glory in the end. We know you will. And we give you thanks. Amen. Our closing hymn is 141 in the hymnal. Okay. 145. We do adore thee. We do adore thee. Why would you 
sacrifice your son, your sinless, perfect son for the likes of us. All we ever did was rebel against your word, hate it and defy it, hate you and what you wanted for our lives. All of that notwithstanding, you found a way to forgive us and to make us your children no less your children than your beloved son who becomes our brother in the faith. Oh Lord, this is just, there's so much mystery here that we can hardly grasp it all. But we are thankful for it. Because it means that our salvation is secure, not because of how good we are, but because of how gracious and strong you are. No enemy of our soul, not Satan himself, can pull us away from the strength of your love and your care. Help us to be confided in that. Realize that no matter what comes our way, we're securing Christ. And dear Savior, we just praise you and thank you today, especially at this time of the year. We remember your coming, your birth, your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection, your promise to come again. None of it's fantasy. You came once, just as prophesied. You will come again, just as prophesied. Your word is honorable. It is true. The scripture says, it is impossible for God to lie. Oh, that's what we need. We need a leader. We need a savior. We need a teacher who doesn't lie. We bless the O Lord and thank you for such great promises in Christ. Be with our sick and ailing as we prayed earlier, and we pray that you will restore them to us in Christ's name.